Take your Bibles and go to Matthew chapter 7. For a number of years, I've been a, a, uh, an interested student of the English language and the way we use it. And uh, one of the things that has captured my attention for some time is the way we take little phrases and we adopt them into the way we speak. And we really say one thing, but it's intended to communicate something else. Take, for instance, the phrase, there's more than one way to skin a cat. How many of you have heard that before? All right, now, I want you to think about that. In order for that to be adopted into our language, somewhere, somebody had to think to themselves, let's skin a cat. (laughs) Now, you get thrown in jail for that these days, skinning cats, that is. Um, But I, I like the way we take those kind of things and then we kind of hold on to them and we use them instead of saying what we actually mean. One of the things that I found in that process, because I like to take those kind of phrases and look up where they came from. And what we find in those is that our language morphs over a period of time. And what it means at one particular point doesn't necessarily mean that it means that 10 years later or 20 years later. In the case of there's more than one way to skin a cat... We find that that was used by Mark Twain in the year 1899. Well, actually, it's not used exactly that way by Mark Twain. He used it in a different way. I don't want to get into all of that. But that particular statement he used, and then he changed it a little bit to say something else. Now, what do we mean when we say there's more than one way to skin a cat? There's alternative ways of doing something, okay? Now, as best we can tell... The first time that showed up in print, which means that it was already kind of in the vernacular of the day, was in 1854. And somebody used it in a context of talking about how they could dig money out of nothing, basically, and how can you make some money. And in this particular document, an individual said, well, when it comes to digging out money, uh, there's more than one way to skin a cat. Well, okay, so it means alternatives, there's another way to do something. Well, at least that's part of what it means for us. I want us to think for a second, does that phrase, there's more than one way to skin a cat, apply into living the Christian life? Now, the question itself is a little bit abrupt, and I understand that. But the answer to it really isn't. If you just study the days in which we live, you'll find that Christians all over the place believe there's more than one way to do the Christian life. Now, the question, though, is, is that a valid kind of a statement? Jesus says, that dog won't hunt. Now, does you understand that one? All right, so Jesus comes to this point of the Sermon on the Mount, and he takes... What he's been saying, we're going to come back and we're going to try to capture a few of the things that he's been saying here, at least the essence of it, because when it comes to living the Christian life, Jesus says there is a way to do it. That's the whole Sermon on the Mount in a nutshell, really. Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, you ought to know this by now, I quote it nearly every week. It is the thesis of the Sermon on the Mount. We've been in the Sermon on the Mount for almost a year now. By the way, the end is in sight, okay? We're almost there. Matthew 5.20, but unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, 
You shall in no way enter into the kingdom of heaven. What he says with that is, there's a way that this has to be done. But we don't like that, okay? It's it's a little bit confining to us in 21st century Christianity, and especially American Christianity. And we like to, like um, the commercial used to say, Burger King, you know, we like to have it our way. But Jesus will have none of that. Matthew chapter 7, in verse 15, he says, Beware of false prophets. Now let me just stop there for a second. And that in itself is a statement for us that there's a right way and a wrong way. I don't want you to miss that Jesus is talking to the gathered disciples. This is part of the Sermon on the Mount, okay? And as a matter of fact, this is the hard move now to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. He's drawing everything together and it almost seems like this doesn't fit here. Why does Jesus start talking about false prophets when all that he's been doing to this point has been talking to his disciples and to us by extension about the life of a Christian, of a Christ follower? He talks to us throughout the Sermon on the Mount about being rather than doing. Now, it's not that the doing part is not important. It is rather that the being part takes care of the doing. In other words, if you let Jesus take care of you from the inside out, then what you do follows suit with who you are. That's why he said, you've heard that it was said, don't commit adultery. That's a do or a don't do kind of a proposition. Jesus says, but I tell you, and then he points us to the heart. He's emphasizing the being versus the doing. And with that, he also says to us, in the context of today, uh, there's one way to skin a cat. This is a fruit inspection kind of a message. So back to the verse, 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that uh, good fruit, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them, that is these false prophets he's talking about, by their fruits. And we continue reading, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus turns as he comes to the end and he talks about fruit inspection. He talks about false prophets. It's almost like it doesn't fit to me. All of this emphasis that he's had for us throughout this Sermon on the Mount, and he's taken us to our values, and he's taken us to how we see other people. And as I said before, the Beatitudes capture in total the two great commandments, love God and love people. Then how does he come to talk about false prophets at the end? I I think that what he's doing for us, we need to see that it's not random at all. It's not like it just kind of enters into his mind and he throws it out there into the sermon. He is intentionally taking us to a point of discernment. 
all of the emphasis on us and the interior life. Now he says, and by the way, look for that in the people around you. Well, that's a little bit challenging. These, these kind of sermons, I just have to tell you, are not real popular. And uh, I'm talking about from my side of it. I don't like preaching the kind of sermon that we're preaching today. It's going to get a little uncomfortable. I don't mind telling you that. I had them go ahead and turn the heat on so they get really good and hot in here and everybody have some reason to be upset. No, I didn't do that. I'm just seeing if you're out there this morning. These kind of sermons move me in a very uncomfortable kind of way. And I suspect that it's going to be true for you before it's all said and done. Jesus turns to talk to his disciples about those who are out there. But really, he's not talking about those who are out there. He's talking about those who are in here. Beware of the false prophets. I communicated to somebody today, be on the lookout for woolly wolves. And don't forget to look behind the pulpit. Now, not in this church, but in other churches, you want to look behind the pulpit for these. <laughs> Let's look at what Jesus says here, see if we can't take it apart. First of all, we need to identify what he means by false prophet. Very simply, this is not a particular group of people. It's not eight or nine guys out there that all of these disciples would have known Jesus was talking about. He's talking about a general term. It's a general group of people. And we need to go back to our understanding of what the word prophet means in order to really get this. In the Old Testament, we see prophets, and our tendency uh, in this day and age is to hear the word prophet, and then we immediately want to make them a foreteller of future events. But that's really not the best biblical definition for what a prophet was. Many prophets did say, this is what is going to happen, but all prophets in the Old Testament context and the New were the ones who said, this is what God has to say to you. It's not a foreteller, he's a fourth teller, telling God's word to a generation of people. And that's where the foretelling often came in, because the Old Testament minor prophets especially, they would stand up and say, you better turn or you're going to burn. That's a prophecy, but it's also a specific word from God that says, what you're doing in your lives these days is outside of God's plan. Okay, So that's the prophet. It's one who stands in the place of God and gives God's message to God's people. So Jesus now takes that and he pulls it in and he says, in the wider group of disciples, there will be those who will stand and speak in my name and they're not from me. They're false prophets. Now, if that's the case, and it is, and we come to this passage and Jesus is telling us to be careful about those people, then maybe it makes sense for us to stop long enough to say, okay, help us identify who they are. That makes sense to you? Hello? Yes? Because I'm going to do that right now. I want these people to stand up. <laughs> no. Aren't you glad I don't preach like that? Actually, as we go through this, you're going to think that I did that because some of us are going to go in our minds and we're going to immediately start hanging faces of people that fit the description. So let me just warn you up front. This is a good message, not to hear it for somebody else's sake, but for your own. Don't listen to this and say, oh, he's talking about so-and-so. Ask yourself, is he talking about me? Who are these false prophets? 
Well, one of the things that Jesus gives us a clue here that helps us, or Jesus gives us a clue that helps us to understand that here it is. These are selfish disciples. I want to reiterate what I've already tried to say several different ways. Jesus is not talking about people who are outside the circle of disciples here. He's talking about those who are inside. They've come into the body of Christ. Now, with this group of people on the hillside, it's early in Jesus' ministry, it's a small group of people. And Jesus looks forward, and I think he sees within that group... By the way, anybody in that group fit the bill for what Jesus is talking about? My immediate response goes to, how about Judas Iscariot, who was among them, but not really of them. That's the picture for us. So Jesus is saying, inside the building if we put it in modern context. These are deceptively selfish people. Verse 15, one more time. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. What they show us is that it's all about them. Their lives are wrapped up in me. And these are the people who are inside the body, who are part of the group, who come in and they utilize relationships within the church for their benefit. And inherently selfish. Their whole motive in being part of the group is so that they can feast on sheep. That's what a wolf does. I, I was saying in the early service that I hadn't really thought about it until I got up to preach. You ever wonder what's going through the mind of a preacher when he's up? I was thinking about cartoons this morning while I was preaching in the early service. Because way back in the old days, uh, there used to be a cartoon where there was the coyote. Now, I'm not talking about the coyote and the roadrunner. I'm talking about the one where the coyote is trying to get into the sheep. And there's this big, hefty sheepdog who always foils the coyote's plans. Well, that's kind of the picture that Jesus is giving here. He's saying to us, every sheep that you see out there is not really a sheep. Some of them are wolves. They're selfish from the get-go. It's all about me and what I can get out of this flock of sheep. Selfish. Now, he could be talking about teachers and preachers. That was going to happen in the early church. We were going to find that there would be these people who would rise up, and they would be itinerant teachers. And they'd go from one synagogue or one house church to another. And as they went, they would go and they would use those people in that group for their own benefit. Paul talks a lot about them. First John talks about them. And, and in those cases, we might look backwards at what Jesus is saying, saying, oh, oh, that's what he's talking about. He's talking about the preachers and the teachers. Well, yes, but not only. You don't have to be a church leader to be a wolf. As a matter of fact, frankly, in my ministry, I've seen more wolves who were lay people than the ones who were the professional preachers. They're driven by selfishness. And they leave behind a trail of damaged, bloody people. You know anybody like that? Let me give you a picture of this that's maybe a little more graphic. It's easier to give this one in the early service. Fewer young ears there. But I'll try to keep it on an appropriate level. When I was in the fifth grade, our family moved. 
Well, actually, when I was in third or fourth grade, we moved from Houston to Central Texas to Brownwood. My dad was going to finish his education, and he was going to be a pastor. And uh, so as a young child, we moved, and uh, we were there for about a year. And then we moved to a town called Ballinger, which is almost in the geographic center of Texas. Not quite, but that gives you an idea where it is. And uh, so it's kind of a small church, but we went to this town, and we got a house. Actually, the church had a house that we lived in. And it was on a street, a row of houses, and immediately on the other side of the street was just country. It was outside the city limits. So there was a little creek that ran down to a tank, a holding, you know, water pond or whatever you call it. Uh, and then from there it went on down to a bigger river. And so my brother and I got the best of both worlds. We could, you know, ride our bikes up and down the streets, but then we could take our 22s and go hunt across the, it was, it was a great life for us. And about a year or so into that, I was fifth grade, going into sixth grade, and uh, my dad decided that it was time for me to be responsible. Now, I don't mind telling you, I hated that about my dad when he pulled that kind of stuff. Time for you to take on some responsibility. And so we talked about how to do that, decided they put me into 4-H. You familiar with that? Yep, okay. So part of that, and the reason he did it in the first place, was to teach me responsibility. So the way we did that was my dad went out somewhere and bought a lamb. You know what a lamb is? <laughs> it's a baby sheep. Okay. We, we named our lamb. We're very original in the way we named it. We named him Lamb. <laughs> now when dad brings this thing home, it's a baby lamb. Uh, that's redundant. It's a lamb. It's a baby. And that means that I was going to have to feed this lamb with a bottle. Now, that sounded great before the lamb got to the house. But by the time the lamb got to the house and went through two or three feedings, all of a sudden I was thinking this responsibility thing was way overblown and I wasn't sure I was ready for that. But it was my job. So we hear the lamb, you know, going off. Then it's time to get a bottle ready, take it over, and feed the lamb. Now, understand this. We had a big backyard. It was fenced in. But my dad was concerned about leaving the lamb out at night. And so we made a makeshift pen in our utility room. Where our washer and our dryer were, uh, we had a little bit of extra space. So we built this barricade to keep the lamb in that area. Now, it was cool watching him try to maneuver on that tile floor uh, with those hooves, but that's a whole other story. So all through the night, we hear this lamb going off and, you know, that kind of thing. In the daytime, we'd put him out and uh, I don't even, boy, girl, I don't remember what it was. It was a lamb. So we put it out during the daytime. And that rocked on for a little while, long enough for me to get caught up with the fascination of having an animal I was responsible for. But day in and day out, taking a bottle and feeding that lamb. You know what happened over a period of time was I started getting attached to this lamb. It became a pet. I don't really know how long we had had it when this incident occurred. But I remember being in the house and my mom came into my room or called me into hers or whatever the case. We sat down and she began to, well, I knew something was up because she was rattled. She looked rattled. And my mom's not a get-rattled kind of person. And so I knew something was up, but I didn't really know. She fought for the words, and finally she let me know that there had been an incident with Lamb. It seems that Fritz, I hadn't told you about Fritz yet. 
Fritz was our next-door neighbor's pet. He was a full-grown German shepherd. And it seems that on this particular day, Fritz climbed the fence and got into the yard with lamb in the backyard and proceeded to spread my lamb across that entire backyard in tiny pieces. As far as I know, that's the first time I ever thought about murder. And I thought about it. I wanted to kill the dog. I wanted to kill the dog's owner. It was not a good day. That's exactly the picture that Jesus gives us in this verse. Beware of those ravenous wolves who have a taste for sheep. You ever known a church like that? You ever known people in the church like that? They're the ones who are in it for themselves. They're the ones who don't mind spreading sheep guts all over the yard. Churches are full of people like this. And they have been from the time Jesus gave this word. It's just part of how we go about it. It's not right, but it's just part of how it is for us. So I want us to take that picture, as graphic as it is, and I want it to be graphic for us because this is God's church. We are His sheep. And He doesn't take it lightly when people come in and start chewing on His people. We need to see some things about this. They come in masquerading as sheep. Do you know what that means and what that looks like for us? That means that these are people who are inside the building and they have the right look about them. If you just give them a passing glance, they look just like Christian church people. As a matter of fact, if you listen to them long enough, you'll hear those church words come out of their mouths. I've seen this a thousand times. In churches as a pastor. People, well, you know, preacher. And then there they go. Slicing and dicing the brothers. They're really not that hard to recognize. They are hard to recognize because they look like us and they talk like us and they probably smell like us. One guy said if it looks like a duck and it walks like a duck and it quacks like a duck... What's, how's that finish? Must be a duck. Not necessarily. What if he's masquerading as a duck? What Jesus is saying to us here, a duck that looks like a duck might not be a duck. In other words, well, is there more than one way to skin a cat? Jesus says to us here, those of us who are in the body, the followers, the ones who have sat through the entire Sermon on the Mount by this time. Jesus says to them, you need to be careful. I've talked to you about this surpassing righteousness. It's not about what you do. It's about who you are. This is not a doing kind of a sermon. It's a being kind of a sermon. And when you get right down to it, Jesus says, some people just don't be right. Well, they do right. It looks like everything's normal on the surface. But when you get right down to the center of it all, they're not part of us. They're in it for themselves. 
<laughs> they fail the surpassing righteousness test. What does that look like in the modern church? Let me give you a couple of examples maybe to help hang some things on it. I got, <laughs> I got a phone call not too long ago. Um, I really started to keep it. I, I didn't actually get the phone call. I missed it. And so what I got was voicemail. And I started to keep this voicemail. And then I got a little worried that if I lost my phone, somebody, one of y'all might find it and listen to the voicemail and think that I was into that stuff. Okay. And I'm not. So I deleted the message. But I'm going to tell you basically what it was. I, I got this. I, I listened to this voicemail. And here's how it started. Now, first of all, it's the, the guy talking on the other side sounds like he's from, man, I don't know, uh, Maybe India, that might work. Botswana, someplace. Not East Texas, okay? He, he had an accent. We don't have accents. This guy had an accent, all right? And it's immediately obvious that he was not from East Texas. And so I thought, well, all right. So here's what he said. Essentially, here's the message. Not a direct quote, but more or less it. Uh, Greetings, brother. Now, anytime somebody starts off with me that way, I kind of go, okay, what's coming? Now, Greetings, brother. I just wanted you to know that God's put you on my heart and I've been praying for you. Well, okay, now that sounds fairly decent. And, and this struggling, this time of struggle in your life that you're going through right now, God's told me about that and I'm praying for you. And I'm thinking, I didn't realize I was struggling right now. And then I thought, well, I'm not struggling right now. Who is this? And then he goes on and he gets to the punchline. Well, I call it a punchline. He called it the go for the gold. Uh, he said, and, and I'm happy to pray for you like that, but if you'll just call me back and send me some money, I'll send you an, an, an anointed prayer cloth that you can hold on to and know that I'm praying for you. You know what, theologically, you know what term we put on that? Baloney. Perfect. That's a wolf. You hear that? That's a wolf. I was in another church. Had a guy come to me. Actually, it's an, it's an interesting thing because this other church that, w- that I was in at the time was going through a major remodeling campaign. And so we had contractors in our building for about nine months. And from time to time, I would walk in there. You know, preachers will only work once a day, one day a week. So every once in a while during the week, you have to find something to fill your time. So I'd walk into the auditorium that they were working on and just watch. Well, over a period of nine months, me doing that, I got to know a few of those contractors. That was deliberate on my part. And I got a chance to talk to them. They started talking to me. And one day I walked in, and one of these contractors came up to me, and he said, Preacher, I, um, man, I got a deal. I don't know what to do. I said, well, maybe I can help you out. He said, I got a problem with my wife. And I said, don't you all. No, I'm, no I didn't say that. Um, I said, what do you mean? He said, my wife has been watching this thing on TV. And if I told you the name, some of you would know the name of this Yahoo. And he's getting her to send him all of her checks Every day, every week, when she gets paid, she writes a check to him and sends it off in the mail. And so we talked through it some. And since then, I hadn't heard of the guy up to that point, but since then I've noticed, get up in the middle of the night about 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock in the morning, this guy's got hours worth of television time bought. 
And he's going to people who are part of the church and he's selling them a bill of goods that says something like, you can't make it in life unless you send me your money and let me pray for you. That's a wolf. And the church of the 21st century is full of wolves. But we have to look for that. It's... This is one of the reasons this is such a difficult message for me to preach. I don't like to stand up here and say, some of us have bad fruit. But Jesus is saying to his disciples, which means he's saying to us, you need to be fruit inspectors because everybody who shows up isn't on the level. You know what that means for us if you want to really get right down to it? That means that in this room today, there's a possibility that some of us look like sheep, smell like sheep, walk like sheep, sound like sheep, but you're a wolf. I'd really rather stand up here and tell you about how great it is to walk with God and it's all honey and no bees and life's just great and it's like sleeping in a down comforter all your life. It's just no problem in the Christian life. Jesus says that's stupid thinking. Beware. Of false prophets. Verse 15 and 16 again. Look very close. Especially verse 16. You'll recognize them by their fruits. And then he gives us examples of that. You know why that's true? Here's something that'll hang, that you can hang something on to remember. Fruit is a product of root. If you really want to know where somebody's coming from, inspect their fruit. But that means that you have to be discerning in your Christian life. It means you can't just show up at church and believe that everybody has pure motives. Now, that's one of the problems with that is it teaches us if we're not careful, we let Satan take that and we become skeptical and then nobody is a true sheep as far as we're concerned. And it destroys community. What Jesus is saying is that self-focus that I talked about that marks the false prophets that produces selfish fruit. When you find somebody who's in it for themselves, you're going to find a trail of bloody people behind them. Let me go back to the how do you skin a cat thing. Do you believe what I'm saying this morning that there's Jesus, according to what Jesus says, this is how you live the Christian life? You believe that there's one way to do the Christian life? Now, here's why I think most Christians don't. I think that we buy into there's more than one way to skin a cat. And we take Christ's demands and we spend them to our benefit. How do you respond when somebody offends you? And I'm talking about somebody in the church. Now, here's the way my experience with Christian people is. When somebody offends a Christian in the church, usually that Christian then goes on the defensive that becomes offensive warfare in its own right. You know what Jesus said? How do you deal with a brother who offends you? Matthew chapter 16 says you go talk to him. Now, you know, through the years, my experience with people has been that when they get, I'm talking about church people now, that when they get offended in the church, they go and tell somebody else. If it comes to me, and sometimes they come to me, I mean, you know, this person over here, they're a sorry, sorry person. 
And my answer to that is, have you talked to them? Well, no, preacher. I couldn't tell them. Well, you told me. Why can't you tell them? Well, you know, I just, I don't like confrontation. So you like character assassination better? More than one way to skin a cat. Jesus says do it this way. Nah, well, you know, Jesus, he didn't really mean that. Nobody says that in church, but many people operate that way. You understand what I'm saying? Hello? Okay, so now we're on to that part of false prophets and wolves in sheep's clothing. Because to come to the preacher or to go to somebody else with a problem that is between you and another person is to go to them and tear that other person up. You're the Fritz in their backyard. But you know, preacher, that's a little extreme. I I just won't say anything. Jesus didn't give you that out either. He said, if they offend you, you go talk to them. You know what else the scripture says about people like that? Titus chapter 3. Now, you don't have to go there. I'll just read it for you. This happened. God showed me this verse because I was dealing with a wolf. Now, I don't mean to tell you. There's some, you know, like amateur wolves. But boy, the church has some that are real all-pro wolves. And this was an all-pro. And over a period of time, this person was continuing to cause issues in the church. And I went to her and talked to her. I said, you've got to stop this. Well, you know, so on and on and on. And finally, by the way, when I did that, then it became me. It was focused on me. So that's okay. So the Lord showed me this passage, Titus chapter 3. Verse 9, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing to do with them. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. You know what that verse means? That means when we identify a wolf in the sheepfold and the wolf is confronted and confronted again and refuses to change, then the wolf gets treated as if they don't even exist. I know church people, when they hear that, they give me the look that you're just giving me. Well, that doesn't sound very Christian. Well, it's in the Bible. But, you know, there's more than one way to skin a cat, preacher. I don't think so. These kind of messages, I always expect to get lots of emails after these kind of sermons. Because, see, we like our nice little comfortable Jesus. We personalize Jesus, you know, we dress him up and we put makeup on him, make him look the way we want him to look. We do those thought bubbles and whatever they are and we write in what we want him to say. That ain't the Jesus of the Bible. That's bad English, but that's great theology. That is not the Jesus of the Bible. He says to us, as a gathered people, look out because some of those people sitting in there with you are going to chew you up. And they leave behind them a trail of bloody people. And Scripture is very clear that such people are to be addressed. (laughs) So I'm going to call out a few names. I want you all to stand up. No, just kidding. After the early service, a lady came up to me. She said, I really thought you were fixing to kick somebody out. And that's not the deal. 
That's not even the whole reason for this. Why do you think Jesus comes to the end of the Sermon on the Mount and he gives this as part of his conclusion? Here's what I think it is. Just cut straight to the point, we're done. I think that Jesus is saying, as you work on your own walk with God, and you work on being the kind of Christian that I describe in the Sermon on the Mount, as you do that, don't make the mistake of thinking that everybody else is. Because some people, even inside the church, are in it for themselves. They violate the two great commandments, love God, love people. They violate the one that we talked about, was it last week? Do unto others the way you would have them do unto you? Those people don't want people doing them that way. And mostly they violate 520, which says, unless your righteousness surpasses those of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter into the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is saying, everybody in the mix is not a sheep. So who are you? That's really the question. This is not a sermon to look out and identify and start tagging other people. Oh, I bet you they're a wolf. I <laughs> uh, no, she's a wolf. I wouldn't point at my wife, just for the record. <clears throat> this is a great sermon to listen to it for somebody else. But you don't get that freedom. Who are you? Let's pray. Wow. Lord, you know I don't like these kind of messages. I guess mostly I don't like the fact that we have to have them. Sure would be easier if you'd just make sure that we all live the way you want us to and force that on us, but you don't do that. Way too gracious and merciful to force yourself on us. We realize that that opens the door for some people who have impure motives and destructive habits to filter in. And our own attempts to live in line with what you've told us sets us up to be taken advantage of by people like that. So my simple prayer for myself and for each of us gathered here today is that you would help us to dig deep into your heart and live our lives according to your heart and your statutes. Make us right with you as individuals. And Father, then we ask you to give us discernment that as we see those who are not of us, those who might even be among us but yet have a whole different agenda than what you've given us that we would see them for who they are we need you to help us love them but help us to at least recognize Father we pray for healing I know in our churches these days and this one is no exception we have people who are deeply wounded by the ones we've discussed today. All kinds of reasons they give 
many of them not even here because of their wounds. We know that you're the great physician and heart wounds are your specialty. So Lord, we pray that you'd do a healing work today. And for those who might be here who have bought into a wolf mentality, we ask you to as graciously as you can and yet as forcefully as necessary move them to the right spot in their relationship with you. And give us a determination as leaders here that we will be a peaceful church where people do not get beat up and cut up. Give us the courage that we need to take those stands for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name.